This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. My name is Adams, Cindy Adams, Madam Adams from the New York Post. You can see me and read me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I've been in the Post since Andrew Jackson created it, or Alexander Hamilton, or whoever created it. Anyway, I've been there forever, and here I am now on WABC. And I'm charming, and I'm warm, and I'm about to tell you that I just went to a screening of Bleecker Street's new movie, Mafia Mama. Okay? The invitee's wardrobe rated four oys. Skirts so tight, the wearers were set for colonoscopy. Squeezing it all in was for a mammogram. These were the housewife types. Forget Paris collections, unless it's Paris, which is a town in Arkansas. This is the only type Paris collections you would have seen at this screening. One blue floor-length marabou wearer had a long black zipper. It had an open, broken hook at the top. Another was wearing a short, short, short green rayon, so tight a lima bean is fatter. Another was snug, snug, snug. Her dress featured a slit higher than the designer's IQ. Then there was a pink one, which barely covered what the wearer was born with that which was pink when she was born. Spanks were outlined through fake feathers. Even their bras probably had sequins. I don't know about the movie, I'm only telling you about the invited guests. Looking gorgeous was the star and producer Tony Collette, formerly on Desperate Housewives. She wore a magnificent white flowered and embroidered floor-length Valentino. A loner. She didn't keep it. So why did she produce this thing? She said, I'm a curious person. I wanted to learn, and I learned by trusting. This has already been sold to all over the world, so we were able to get our financing. I've loved every minute of doing this. The pleasure hasn't ended yet. For me, it was a beacon of light. All of that meant she was prepared to not say anything other than how wonderful the movie was, and she was prepared to get rid of me in about two seconds. The best part, she said, was that we did this in Rome. What could be more exciting than to be working in Rome? Okay. Her Valentino loner got stepped on. It diverted her attention to some hard-hitting reporter from something called the Nocturnal. So she left me flat to speak to the Nocturnal reporter. Everyone posed for photos. This group kept smiling toward cameramen who were still in New Jersey. Even their beating was at attention. It was housewives from consignment shops. Spike heels, right foot extended, boobs stuck out, rears squeezed, hands on hips, long, 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 long hair, down to short, short, short hair. Invitees loved the movie. Why not? It was their mirror. Okay, I'm going on to some other things. I'm going on. Everybody's complaining about prices today. Eggs, they're expensive. Milk is costlier than shoes. Rent is so high that buying a building is cheaper. 
Try Springsteen at the Garden. It had confusing MSG signage, which indicated how and where you go for a ticket-scanning entrance machine. But this person's particular machine didn't work. There was also no human to assist. What there was was scaffolding everywhere. Then sit where? No usher. Ticketmaster was $800 for bad seats. They couldn't find an usher. Also, everyone in the surround kept talking. You couldn't enjoy the big stars singing for the big mouths talking. And so much technology that maybe there should be less on keeping enemies out and more on welcoming fans. I just want to tell you what it was like at Madison Square Garden. Now I want to go to something a little, a little sober. Staten Island and Lower Manhattan legislation might now take a pass on those batteries that are exploding. Lithium batteries, even going to banning storage sites where they are kept. Lithium ion phosphate batteries are known to explode. They jeopardize lives. They cause fires. They overheat. In electrical vehicles, laptops, boats, e-bikes, phones, scooters, they overheat. March 9th, 29th, 2022, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission reported 25,000 issues in a five-year period. NBC News reported dousing one fire that took thousands of gallons of water. International Association of Fire and Rescue Services complains that batteries-related fires have increased five-fold in six years. So, what I'm telling you now, comes now a Boston-based company. It's called Alsim, A-L-S-Y-M. It's Made in America Technology. Alsim's non-toxic, non-flammable technology is sworn to replace those lithium-ion phosphate batteries. Alsim says they're non-flammable, non-toxic, they are cheaper than the lithium Ion. If you want a better way, the industry wants it made in the USA, and Alsim could be the game changer. Okay, I'm going on to some other things. I have had enough of reading about hateful Russia. I want to tell you that Russia's unending hate has reinforced my memory of the different times I've spent there. I have been in Kazakhstan, I have been in St. Petersburg, I have been in Moscow. Once a Muscovite journalist told me, we are not capitalists with unlimited money to throw around like Americanskis. Really? An empty taxi grudgingly took me after stiffing me repeatedly. The driver said to me in passable English, we avoid Americans much trouble. No understand them, even they use little dictionaries. In school, 
must take foreign language, most English. Still, he said, difficult understand Americans. They talk too fast. Yeah, like Vladimir. In the Bolshoi, an attendant tugged my coat. I was cold, so I kept it on. He then barred my way. Forbidden to keep wearing it, I was told, people here accept authority. We obey rules automatically. Take your coat off. Another one said to me, for only a few rubles, you know, I can sit in the exact box which once held the czar. So me, I asked, oh, that's great. So how often do you come here? His answer, this first time. On the outside, pleasant. Inside the hotel, something else. Leave a Kleenex crumpled in your luggage. Return, and it's crumpled differently. My hotel lacked elevators opening onto two unlisted floors. Reportedly stored there is wiretap equipment. I was warned to speak about nothing inside my room. The attendant said to me, This hotel is very modern. We have telephones in every room. You can ring every place direct, and calls are free. I said, Yeah, but you can't reach anyone. The Soviet Union has lots of unlisted numbers. Her reply, Yes, but we have the phones. Forget decor. My iron curtain room did showers, but no curtains. Sinks minus stoppers. Room service that didn't answer. But, she said, a new hotel is going up. It is now equipped with every luxury facility. So I said, well, will it have a swimming pool? She said, certainly not, but it will have a concert hall. My shampoo girl on where she holidays. She says, Crimea, Sochi in the Black Sea where leaders have a house and many of the Presidium vacation. Every Russian goes to the Black Sea, though it is warm temperature and not refreshing to swim in. It's common practice for us to go into the water in our bra and panties. Streets had automatic vending machines. The places also had one glass available for everyone's use. I was introduced to a local entertainer who had fashioned some dolls in his image. If anyone sold, did he get a percentage from what those earned? His answer, niet. So I said, well, does he have fan clubs? He said, niet. Does his employment come with a star dressing room? Niet. So what's the symbol of his elevated status? He said, I have a car. Another person dared whisper, just whisper, about the space race. He said, what good is it? We should first progress on the ground. Much greater achievement if they got around to taking care of us, the simple working people. Give us housing, clothes, 
Always they promise. They even repeat it. But how long must we wait before they fulfill their promise? That was my visits, several visits, to the Soviet Union. And they can shove it. But I want to thank you for listening. And I want to tell you I have loved speaking to you. And I want to tell you to please tune me in every Sunday at 1 o'clock. And I am now going to go off and make a station break. And then I will be back in two seconds. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am now about to speak with a lexicographer. He's from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. His name is Peter Sokolovsky. He knows words, and he is about to use some of them while talking to me. I'm very eager to speak to Peter Sokolovsky. There's so many questions I have that I would like to understand. First of all, it, it seems to me that we have a lot of slang and street words today. Is that what goes into a new dictionary? Well, that's what's always been in the dictionary. Uh, and the simple fact is that for informal language, uh, which traditionally had been spoken before it was ever written, uh, that kind of language wasn't often found in uh, dictionaries. More recently, because informal language is frequently written before it's spoken, and by that I mean uh, because of social media, because of posting uh, on, uh, in, in, on, on Twitter or Facebook or also texting. So some of those texting abbreviations like LOL, for example, um, have made it into the dictionary because they're frequently found in print. Okay. Did you yourself, because you are the editor, I mean, I'm so impressed. I haven't made, <laughs> meant, I haven't spoken to a dictionary editor in a long time. Did you yourself ever, growing up, screw up a word? <laughs> All the time, of course. What do you screw um, up? How could you screw up a word? Oh, I think we all do. The fact is, I mean, we are human and language is a human instrument. And so it bends and is flexible. And, you know, you can, you know, as children do, kind of misinterpret or, or uh, uh, maybe miscategorize uh, or maybe even mispronounce a word. And that happens all the time. And we still get through. We still communicate. Um, the dictionary represents the kind of standard uh, pronunciation, the standard spelling, the conventions of language, but of course language is much bigger than what can fit in a dictionary. How do you become a dictionary editor? Where did you go to school? How did you learn? How does this happen? <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't deliberate. Um, some, uh, I never knew this was a job, uh, in fact, but I was uh, on my way to becoming a professor of French. I was teaching French at the University of Massachusetts, and uh, I had studied French grammar and language, but also philosophy and literature. And so all of that uh, is kind of an intense study of language when you when you think about it. And so I came to the to the to Merriam-Webster as the initially the French language editor, um, and I was well prepared for that. And it turns out, of course, that kind of attention paid to language uh, really pays off when looking at English words as well. So I've been here now 29 years. My God. So if I were to ask you in my gracious way, have you ever screwed up a word yourself? <laughs> of course, of course. Do, do you remember what? 
Oh my goodness. Um, uh, well, I actually do. I mean, it's a, it's a silly little thing, but I also record our word of the day podcast, which you can get as an email or you can listen as a podcast. And what's nice about listening, and I know that classrooms listen, they can hear the words pronounced and they hear a little two minute history of the word. And I once recorded the entire word. Um, and the, and uh, I was then told by a colleague that I had mispronounced the word every time I said it in, <laughs> in the podcast. Um, I'm so and pleased. It, yeah, it was just a silly little thing, but I had, uh, you know, it was a word that, and sometimes I get interference. In this case, it's a word that's very common in French and very uncommon in English. And I had been using a French kind of style pronunciation for the word. The word was quotidian. Uh, and I was saying quotidian. <laughs> so that, so ah, I, had to, I, had to, I had to re-record. <laughs> How often do we redo a dictionary? Well, the, uh, the Collegiate Dictionary, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, traditionally has a new edition every 10 years. But the fact is the online dictionary at merriam is updated continuously. We, we make updates two or three times a year with many hundreds of changes each time. Um, and if we ever find an error or find something that is uh, important to fix, uh, we make that uh, adjustment immediately because online it's, it's different from print. We can make those changes more quickly. And in, in some ways the dictionary responds uh, faster today than it ever has. What's an error? How can the dictionary make an error? We always <laughs> look at the dictionary to correct us. How does the dictionary make an error? Oh, sure. I mean, there are occasionally just typos, of course, but then there are other things. Um, for example, new research can show uh, information. So, for example, we give the date of the first known use of every word in the dictionary. Uh, and sometimes new research shows, for example, an earlier date. So we'll go in and change that date, for example. Give me some new words besides the, the, the schleppy words that they're using, like woke and some mm -hmm. of the other dumb thing. What are, what are some new words? Well, there have been some new words uh, that, for example, that come as a consequence of the pandemic. We have new entries for false negative and false positive and booster dose. And those are all things that uh, really didn't have to be in the dictionary until recently. Subvariant as well as a, as a kind of uh, term for the disease. But also um, altcoin and unbanked shrinkflation is a term that we heard it's a lot. It's what? Shrinkflation? Yeah, shrinkflation, which is the practice of reducing a product's amount or volume per unit while continuing to offer the product at the same price. So, for example, if, there's a, 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 if, you, if your cereal box is the same price but actually contains less cereal, that's called shrinkflation. <laughs> Listen, I'm not exactly stupid. I've been at the New York Post for 41 years. I have never heard the words shrinkflation. I heard the words they, it, the price went down or it's too cheap sure. or something like that. shrinkflation. What, what are some other old, tired, overused words that maybe you're getting rid of? Oh, no. Well, we don't we don't retire words. And that's the nice thing is that, um, you know, uh, words in the dictionary ha sort of have to stick around. They have to stay because if it was used, for example, in a book or an article, um, even 40 or 50 years ago, someone might may be reading that book or article and it, it will be useful. So uh, the dictionary online is no longer um, limited by space, so we don't have to remove words as we used to do. Um, and it is true that for the co collegiate, uh, we had to save space. Uh, and uh, a word, for example, once that was removed was the word snollygoster, which is kind of a fun word. I never um, heard that word in my entire whole life. S say it again. 
a snollygoster. And it, it's such a fun word. In fact, it's kind of come back in vogue and we've replaced it. We put it back into the online dictionary. It was famously used by President Truman, uh, who was widely quoted saying it and then sort of fell out of favor and has kind of snuck back, I think partly because it's a fun word to say. That's a lousy Michigan type word. I mean, nobody in a, in a real city would use that word. <laughs> what was, in what context was he using snollygoster? Maybe when he looked at his uh, wife or something. Well, snollygoster, it means a, a, an unscrupulous person and uh, he was referring to a journalist <laughs> since you asked. Oh, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get rid of you if you, how dare you? Okay, okay, okay. With all the foreigners coming in and mixing into our country, does that not change the wordage that we're using? Uh, it can, uh, but certainly English has always been kind of a magpie of, of, uh, of languages. We've always taken in words, especially, for example, food words that come from other cuisines. The word cuisine itself, of course, is a French word. Um, and so words for foods uh, are among the new words, and they tend to be foreign words, uh, words from um, from Spanish, but also from Korean or Vietnamese, you know, different different types. In um, recent uh, months, we've added the term banh mi, which is a kind of Vietnamese sandwich, which is very popular uh, in, in the West Coast, for example. So that term, which is a, a obviously a Vietnamese language term, has come into English and has become a naturalized citizen of the language. But, of course, you know, the Norman Conquest back in 1066 brought in, uh, you know, a whole new vocabulary for the English language, including the words vocabulary and language. So um, immigration has always been part of the way that English works as a language. Do you know how long it took to compile the first English dictionary and when it was, how it was? Well, that's a that's a really good question. It's a little hard to measure because there was no uh, English din- language dictionary at the time of Shakespeare, for example. The first uh, one that we're aware of is 1604. So Queen uh, uh, just at, just after uh, the, the era of Queen Elizabeth I. And it was a very tiny dictionary. I think it had 2,400 words in it. Uh, and those words were just what they called hard words, uh, words that were based on Latin and Greek bases, words like microcosm or integrity, you know, words that are kind of what we might say as like standardized testing words to this day. Words from the medical and legal professions tend to come from Latin and Greek. And that's what the original dictionary was. So originally they were sort of expanded uh, textbooks for vocabulary, teaching books um, that were just lists of words, essentially. And that was the first, you know, sort of uh, English dictionary. They were very small books and they did not include words of Anglo-Saxon or Old English origins. That is to say, words like like our common verbs like go and run and set um, or words like mother or door or, uh, you know, all the Old English words, which were considered words of the family or hearth and home and were not uh, professional words that were originally included in the very first dictionaries. Has there ever been a retraction or a mistake in the dictionary? <laughs> oh, yes. And one of the most famous mistakes, in fact, was one of ours uh, at, at Merriam-Webster in 1934. Um there was a kind of a mistake in uh, drafting a, d- a definition. There was supposed to be a, um, a chemical uh, abbreviation for the word density, and density is an important idea in chemistry. And um, in chemical equations, sometimes density is represented by the initial D, by just simply the letter D, meaning density. And someone, one of our editors had r- written in capital D or lowercase d, 
uh, to indicate that this letter D could mean density as an abbreviation. But in fact, it was entered with a definition as the word doored, D-O-R-D. Um, and it remained there for about a dozen years before it was found and it was removed. It was corrected. It's maybe the most famous error in a dictionary. There was a couple of years ago when I was teaching school in Laos, Vientiane, it was not because I'm a teacher or I knew anything that was great about English, but there was a problem and I was there doing some re- reporting and they co-opted me to teach a small class. And I used a phrase exactly identical. I wanted something identical. So I, they couldn't get it and I couldn't explain it and they never did get it. And all she ever said to me was, the, one of the kids in class, that she wanted a dress identical to mine. That was the only way I could get her to understand the word identical. <laughs> you can't always explain it. You can't. You say it's the same as or something, but it right. comes out differently with people who are not of your nationality. They get it differently. Oh, absolutely. No, language is a habit and language is culture and culture is manners. Right. And so every culture has its own set of manners. Every culture has its own grammar and vocabulary. So you're right. Um, it's not uh, math. You know, it's not simply one word equals another word. Um, and so context is important. Uh, register is important. Tone is important. Uh, and uh, that's why, you know, you know, we are today speaking standard English. And that's why standard English is the is uh, is the method of communication professionally for airline pilots, for example, because uh, standard English is something that it's understood, um, has been studied. And no matter what your home language is, you can come together with that standard English. But it does take a lot of practice. Anti-disestablishmentarianism, still the longest word in the English language? Uh, you know, it probably isn't. Uh, we don't we don't enter that word in our dictionaries uh, for the simple reason that it's only ever used to cite uh, itself as a long word. Um, and so if it's not a word that is used to carry meaning, then um, then we don't um, you know, we, we don't just uh, we don't enter it into the dictionary. And so that's just a word that's usually cited just because it's a long word, very much like the word uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, which similarly is a familiar word. And yet it doesn't actually have a recognizable meaning. You mean to say that this this word anti-disestablishmentarianism is not in the dictionary? It's not in a Merriam-Webster dictionary. Nope. Well, what kind of a dictionary would it be in? Uh, I mean, the word might exist. It's probably in the big Oxford English Dictionary um, because, I mean, there, there are some rare occasions when it is used to carry meaning. Um, and so that would mean anti-disestablishmentarianism. That means um, a- opposed to the opposition of the uh, legally um, mandated uh, church uh, and head of state as the same person. In other words, the king or queen of England being the head of state, which is establishmentarianism. Uh, and so, you know, it's just simply not a word that's used very frequently and so therefore not in the dictionary. Well, it's hard to get it into a conversation, I'll tell you that. What <laughs> yes. It, so, okay. Are you, today, are you adding new gender pronouns? Her, him, them, them, it, binary, queer, sex, whatever. I mean, I don't know how to address someone these days. Do you have that uh, well, problem inside the dictionary? It's a huge problem because identity terms are kind of the 
the, the, the place where language is changing a lot. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, all of the words you just said, are, of course, have always been in the dictionary. There's no problem with an understanding any of those words. And we don't add new, new pronouns, certainly, um, because the dictionary reflects uh, the way the language is actually used. We don't invent usages, we report them. Uh, and in a way, we're kind of a reflection of the language rather than, uh, you know, a, 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 a sort of the, um, the creator of language. And so uh, as new usages that take place, we report them absolutely in the dictionary, but we're not creating new uses. Okay. I want to thank you. I'm not sure I know what I learned but I am very grateful to talk with you. I love the dictionary. I use it all the time. I don't understand half the things it tells me, but I, I do love it. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter, for coming on and speaking with us. Not at all. It's a treat to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. There is a new delicious Broadway musical that has just opened. It's called Shucked. It's at the Nederlander Theater. It's fun. It's wholesome. There's no shooting. There's no filth. There's no nudity. There's no drugs, hate, or stabbings. It's about raising corn, and you mustn't miss it. In it, Alex Newell gets a standing ovation every time he opens his mouth. Trust me, go see the show. You'll love it. So, Alex Newell, he's in the delicious new play, Shucked. It's at the Nederlander Theater. He's going to walk away, run away, skip away with the Tony, I'm telling you. He is, he is a fall-down, fabulous artist. Where were you born? Uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Well, Salem, Massachusetts, rather. But you don't have anything that sounds Massachusetts-y. I don't. Um, I had an acting mentor that said, you, for, to be an actor, you have to have like a blank slate. And um, both of my parents are from Alabama. So if anything, I have a Southern dialect that comes out if I get tired. Where were you educated? Um, in Massachusetts. I didn't form, have any formal training um, in college, I actually applied to a lot of schools for a BFA and got rejection letters from a, a majority of them. How did you get rejection letters? Why? I don't know. Um, a, a lot of things, uh, uh, depending with like auditioning and not, you know, most BFA programs have like a template that they all follow. You have your ingenue, you have your leading man, you have your comedic actress, your comedic actor, your dancer, your strong singer. And I guess I just didn't fit into one of those categories. And so I didn't get in. Oh, sweetheart, you don't fit into any category. I mean, you <laughs> are by yourself. We'll get into that. Now, tell me about show business. How did you begin? I, I really got my biggest break on a TV show called The Glee Project, and then an even bigger break after that on the TV show Glee. How'd you get it? Um, I auditioned online years and years and years and years ago, and they turned this online submission into a reality show that I lost. I lost that reality show, and the consolation prize that I got was two episodes on Glee. <laughs> But, Alex, you are so different. You don't belong in any category whatsoever. How is this yeah. they could turn you down for anything? <laughs> well, thank you. I, You know, sometimes it takes a lot for people to get on board to a lot of things sometimes. 
Well, how did this role in Shut come to you? And then we will discuss the role. How did you, how did you get it? Um, I truly was sitting on my couch eating some chips and the MD texted <laughs> me and said, do you want to do this Broadway show that I'm working on or do you have any interest in being on Broadway in the spring? And I was just like, sure, send it over. I would love to read it. I'm not doing anything. I'm not played to do anything for a while, just resting. And I walked in and I sang the song and for Jack, the director, and Robert, the writer, and Shane and Brandy, the composers. And it was history after that. You mean to say this song that gets a standing ovation in the middle of Act One, I was there opening night, and the whole bloody audience stood up and gave you a standing ovation. You mean that song you sang cold? Yeah. <laughs> well, back then they just it was uh it was it wasn't that big of a song. It was a, a more subdued version of the song. And so what they had then the original version of it was um I'm not gonna say la- less show stoppy, but it wasn't as flashy as it used to be. Oh, my God, is it flashy. You stopped the show cold. (laughs) The question now is, and you have a high-class answer, and I know because I've been with you, are you a boy? Are you a girl? Are you a they? What the hell are you? You know, I transcend all of that. I've never truly ever subscribed to it. Um, And it was kind of hard starting that way because when I started all those years ago, not not even that many years ago, 13 years ago with Glee, there was no terminology. There was no um, vocabulary or vernacular for non-binary or genderqueer or gender nonconforming all the way back then. And I truly had to figure it out on my own and be true and steadfast in my own self to figure it out and be comfortable with not wanting to fit into any box or label about it. I don't know how you get away with that because only you can do it. I don't know that. Do you date? Is it guys you date or women you date or what? I mean, what do you I, date? I'm, I've always been particular to a male. Honey, I love a man. I love yeah, me a too, man, a tall man. <laughs> <laughs> me too, but I'm not on Broadway. I, I understand. What is your lifestyle? You go home and what do you do? Do you live alone? Do you go out for, to alone. a bar? At, what do you do? I Sometimes I go to a bar. You can find me at my favorite bar, Glasshouse Tavern, all the time. Um, and I just like to decompress. I love to see my friends. And if I'm not, if I'm like, if I'm a little under in the voice, I go home. I sit, I watch some trashy reality television shows. I like to turn my mind off and just like vegetate in a way and just kind of rest. I, I'm a whole proponent of rest. So in your other plays or your other productions, have you played a female or a male? What do you play? In this um, one, you play. A, a lady, and you break the house down. It's incredible. We stand and give you an ovation. What do you, what are you in other shows? Uh, you know, most of my roles either are made after me, and they form them around me, and there'll be non-binary or gender non-conforming. Um, or the last one, when I was in Once in a Silent, I played, uh, her name was Asaka, and she was the goddess of the earth. <laughs> Yeah, well, okay. What can I do with that? I don't know what the hell to do with that. <laughs> do you, did you, did anything ever happen to you? Do you ever lose your drawers on stage? I was on stage when I was a kid. I lost my slip and I thought I'd die of, uh, uh, I was so embarrassed. Did you ever freeze on stage? I've never frozen on stage. 
I, 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 you know, as actors, we call it the white room where you forget everything in one moment <laughs> and you have to grapple at everything. But I've, I've never, I sometimes, there was one time I was in Once Miss Island um, that I had this gorgeous um, uh, ball gown skirt that was made out of tablecloth, like a plastic oil tablecloth. And <laughs> I started my number and I remember doing the blocking and walking down the stairs and there was this massive telegram pole that was there and it got hooked onto the skirt and all I remember was getting stuck and ripping the skirt <laughs> from the hem all the way to the waist. What, what did you do? What did you do? I just remember I, I, I never stopped singing. I like shimmied out of the skirt. <laughs> And I had, thank goodness, I had leggings on under it. And the last time I saw that skirt, it was going off stage with another cast member. Alec, you're terrific. Did you ever freeze, freeze on stage? Did you ever lose your, your, ad, did you ever ad lib? I, I, there was a time that I lost, I was singing independently on when we did our out of town in Salt Lake. And I, I just lost every lyric, every lyric of the song was just out of my brain in one good moment. And I'm like, I like panic and I turned around and I look at um, one of my cast members and they just start singing. And I was like, oh, praise God, somebody knows it because I don't right now. What about jealousy? I mean, you run away with the show. You absolutely run away with the show. And you're the thing we all talk about. We know you're going to get the Tony. So what about jealousy backstage? I, we don't have any. We're... And it's strange because I've worked on many things where jealousy is like the root of it all. And like that is the driving force about a lot of product, the production. And this one, we're, we're such a tight knit family because we depend so much on each other. Like yeah. that's the end all be all. We just like comedy is really hard. It is so hard. And like if a line isn't served to you correctly the joke doesn't land sometimes so i think we all have to trust each other in that sense and we all just genuinely like each other which i can tell you never actually happens yeah i know that i know that okay this show just opened it's going to be a hit it is a hit people want to get in and see it you are going to win the tony even though i shouldn't be saying that but that's the <laughs> truth so what are you going to do next because now you're hot as hell so what are you going to do next uh, you know, I'm working on making a grand return back to TV. I would love to be back there for a little bit. And my my dream role is still Effie and Dream Girls. So I'm always gunning for that and I'm manifesting and always screaming to the rooftop that I want to play Effie and Dream Girls. What about the wardrobe? Mine? Well, uh, Effie, yeah, yeah. Do they make something special for you? No, I'm, I'm always just, they strap me in a corset and pat me on the behind and say, go get him, kid. Do you wear a wig because you had long hair when I saw you in person? Oh, I always have long hair. I love my long hair. You also have a large, gorgeous figure, honey. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, really. What happened when you first did the song? Don't tell me this song was a, was a winner when you first did it. I wouldn't imagine no. it would be a winner. It, it it wasn't it when I say it wasn't flashy at the beginning. It wasn't flashy. It was one of those good storyteller songs. Like it told us who this character was. It told us who this person was, and what this what she needed out of life. And you know, in Salt Lake, when we did it out of town, 
Like, there was a great response to it, but it wasn't ending in a big, flashy way. And that was, like, the biggest takeaway about that. And so when we came back to New York, me and the orchestrator and music director, Jason Howland, we sat there for a couple minutes and a couple days and just tried to figure out how to make it even more flashy, how to make it bigger, how to make it better. Because we would sit there in Salt Lake and people would want to stand up, but we didn't give them that opportunity to stand up. And so when we came to New York, we said we have to give the people the, the chance to clap and do what they want to do naturally. Well, so what was your creation? I understand that. I understand. <laughs> okay, do you date? And what do you date? Um, you know, I date. Um, I date a lot. <laughs> Dating in New York City is always awful. But um, <laughs> um, yes. I, I'm always constantly on a date. Um, and I always have a prerequisite that you have to be taller than me because I love my high heels. Oh, for God's sakes, you're still wearing <laughs> high heels. Oh, for Pete's yes. Oh, I'm got, oh, listen, I think you're absolutely wonderful. I adored you. I have never seen an opening night audience rise to their feet the way they did. You were terrific. Drop dead great. That's what you are, Alex. Thank and I'm your you. friend thank and you. I'm your friend and I love you. Love you. Thank you so much. Thanks, sweetheart. Thanks for coming on, darling. I love you. No worries. Anytime. Okay, hon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I would like to speak about Benjamin Ferenc. We just lost him. He's aged at 103. He was born in Transylvania. He was reared in Hell's Kitchen poverty. His father was a janitor. He was a Harvard Law graduate, a lawyer, a U.S. Army soldier. But what he was was the last surviving prosecutor of 1947's historic Nuremberg trials. I sat next to him. January 2002, I sat alongside Prosecutor Ferenc, front row, in courtroom 600, Palace of Justice in Nuremberg. That was Hitler's actual courtroom. Huge chamber, marble walls, wooden seats, crystal chandeliers, five elevators. The cauldron of Nazism, where it began with the Third Reich's legal profession swearing allegiance to the Führer. It was 20 defendants convicted of killing one million people. Turo Law Professor Judge Saul Wachtler invited international legal minds to memorialize the Holocaust, the largest murder trial in human history. It was so traumatic that during it the moderator Wachtler lost his voice, and it was my seatmate Prosecutor Ferenc, who scrambled to find him a lozenge. Those of us who didn't speak German heard translations on headsets. It's betrayal of the rule of law in Nazi German, filmed and later was premiered at the New York City Bar Association. Benjamin Ferenc pointed out that Hitler's power began and pay attention, America, Hitler's power began 
with co-opting the existing rules of law. And he said then, and he put it on microphone, he said, America must take care that it doesn't happen in this country. On his 100th birthday, he said, I have no time to die. I've got too much to do. It was an extraordinary experience for me to be sitting next to him in the same courtroom. Okay, on to something else. Everything that time has swept away has come back except for the prices. Once famous interviews like Eleanor Roosevelt, Tennessee Williams, Rod Sterling, Rod Serling, Frank Lloyd Wright, Oscar Hammerstein, Henry Kissinger are now on Sirius XM. Like Sammy Davis Jr.'s, my great-grandfather was a slave. Even if I go out with Frank Sinatra, my great-grandfather was a slave. I cannot deny it, forget it, or shoo it away. Salvador Dali said, My painting, showmanship, and technique is only to express the total personality of Dali. Jaja, quote, I find time to spend with my daughter in between private schools and public weddings. Paul Newman said in 1960, I pop a pretty good batch of popcorn. More. This is what's going on at the moment. Joe Pesci wants to make and sell sunglasses. He's filming, when he filmed The Irishman in 2018, he says, my sunglasses got compliments. So I created my own. Joe Pesci making sunglasses? He said, they're stylish, but they are now practical, and they're comfortable, and they look great. They're okay for formal or casual. And he calls Pete Davidson a fan. How that helps, who knows? The styles are cinema and primo and start at $99. And as for discounts, forget about it. Actually, you can forget about anything else because that's all I have to say at this moment. And I am going to ask you, please, tune me in again next Sunday at 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock, and I will be almost as brilliant and clever and amusing as I was today. And if you don't think so, don't don't say anything. Just tune me in. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.